Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 5. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. And if you remember, the church started out of great adversity, but that adversity has made them even stronger in the faith. And this early epistle is written to encourage these believers and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for these Thessalonian Christians. And then Paul commended the wonderful example that these believers had set for others to emulate. Jesus, see, Jesus saved them and now they are all in rightly so. Now the worthless idols of their former life are meaningless compared to Christ. And now, they're all about living for the glory and pleasure of Christ. See, they get it now. They understand things clearly now. Christ is all that matters. And if you have Him, you have everything for life now and for all of eternity. And they're great examples for us to follow. Last time, Paul began to defend himself and his companions against the false teachers and the haters who were lying about him. And he reminds them that they knew the truth about them because they had seen that for themselves very clearly. So they spoke the truth. They, they were faithful in suffering. And the Thessalonians knew that. They, their motives were pure. And they weren't in the ministry for self. No, no, no. They were in it for the glory of God very clearly. And the Thessalonian Christians knew it. And Paul continues to defend himself in today's passage. Let's look, verse 4. As we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Now, the first thing that we see here is the fact, which is this, that they, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they have been approved by God. And that is really all that matters. That even though people were bad-mouthing Paul and his friends, and even though Paul and his friends had many enemies because Paul was a faithful apostle and preacher of the Word of God, and even though there were many haters of Paul and his friends, both from within the church, think about that, and from without, look, the only approval that really matters is the Lord's. And we do well, we all do well, to remember that fact. The Greek word translated approved means to be proven worthy after testing. The word involves not only testing, but determining the genuineness or value of an object so that that which has been tested is demonstrated to be true and to be trustworthy. So when Paul uses the word here in verse 4, it signifies that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had indeed been tested, and look, they were found to be valid and true by the Lord God Almighty Himself. As one noted, just as Greek candidates for office were tested for their fitness before they were allowed to assume public office, so the missionaries were tested before they were commissioned as God's messengers. And that's, that's absolutely right. And they continued to be tested, and they continued to be approved by God. See, if God were to entrust these men with the gospel... Would they carry it faithfully? Would they be trustworthy with the gospel of Christ? Well, these men had been previously tested and they've been examined by God and 
Clearly, God has approved of them. How did that testing happen? It doesn't say. But clearly, when God had examined the heart and the motives of the missionaries, He found that they were faithful, they were trustworthy, they were reliable, and they were true. They passed the test, see, and they continued to pass the test. What does that mean? Well, it means that their aim was to glorify God and God alone, to be faithful to God alone, to please God first and foremost because of their intense love for Him. And that fact was clearly seen throughout their ministry. In 1 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says these very telling words. I love this verse, by the way. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Isn't that good? Anybody? With me... It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. And that word judge means to evaluate or to cross-examine. And here, Paul's saying that he doesn't care how people evaluate him or how people judge him. He doesn't care. He's saying that what people think of him means very, very, very little. Now, in saying that, Paul isn't being arrogant. He's simply telling the truth that as a servant and a steward of God, of which he was and of which all of us are as Christians, look, it's God's evaluation of him that matters and it's God's judgment of him that he values not man's, not man's at all. See, Paul's just being judged and evaluated by people all the time, constantly, thus the need to defend himself here in 1 Thessalonians. And Paul very easily could have fallen into the trap of trying to please men instead of pleasing God. That happens all the time, right? Because the lure of people liking you is very enticing. And the pain of serving Christ faithfully isn't always easy. But here's the question. Whose approval do you want? Right? Here we find that all that Paul really cared about was what God, his master, thought of him rightly so. In his ministry, Paul was despised. He was misjudged. He was ridiculed. He was criticized. He was falsely evaluated by people all the time. And here, he's letting them know that his goal is very simple. To be faithful to God and to not be judged positively by men. That's that's not his aim. His aim is to be faithful to God alone. So, it's a small thing what you think. And he's right. That can work both ways. Many times preachers get judged wrongly when they shouldn't be. And many times preachers get elevated too much when they shouldn't be. And Paul knew that it's best simply to look to God and to remember that God's opinion is the only one that has true and lasting value. God approves of me, so it doesn't really matter what you think or what you say about me. And he's right. And Paul was very confident in this truth. So question. If it didn't matter what people thought, then why does Paul defend himself here? Here's why. Because while Paul didn't care about sinful man's approval, look at this. The message that he preached and the God that he represented mattered. And as an apostle and as a steward of God, Paul therefore defended himself because he represented God and and the gospel of God. For the Lord, see, that's what Paul's in this for, not at all. For himself. God knows, he says. And God approves, and that's all that I really care about, and I love that. (laughs) Hey, stop trying always to win other people's approval, and just look to the Lord and glorify Him. 
It's better to be a fool for the Lord and glorify Him than to be popular with sinful people. It's better to have God alone be pleased with us than to lose that and to have the esteem of the whole world. God's approval is truly what matters. It's really all that matters. And the question is, does He approve? Hey, your marriage is a test. Does God approve? Are you passing that test? That sin that's hounding you is a test. Does God approve? Are you passing that test? How you spend your time is a test. Does God approve? Are you passing that test? Your prayer life is a test. Your Bible intake is a test. God, does God approve? Are you passing that test? Your trials, your hardships, your struggles, those are all tests. Does God approve? Are you passing those tests? Your children are a test. Amen? (laughs) Does God approve? Are you passing the test? Look, to be approved to God is to be faithful to God and to live diligently for the glory of God. And the question is, does God approve? Are you passing the test? The test to say no to sin, to pursue holiness with passion, to endure trials faithfully, to forgive your enemy, to love others, to be a good spiritual warrior, to share your faith, to pray much and to eat up the Word of God, to walk in the Spirit, to put God first above sinful men, to fulfill your calling like Paul was, to continue to use the means that God has graciously given to you to grow and to draw ever nearer to Him. What about you? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were approved by God, and that testing had not just happened in the past, but it continued to happen really every day. And God approved. God was pleased because He knew their heart. Eternal value. So, how is that approval really seen? This. They've been entrusted with the gospel. That's what Paul says. As we've been approved by God, what? To be entrusted with the gospel. What a privilege that is. And Paul understood that privilege very clearly. This is what he must do. He must go and preach the gospel because this is what God has called him to do, specifically as an apostle. God has approved, and the proof of that is what he's entrusted we, me with, which is the gospel. As he said in Ephesians 3, eight. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He said it again in 1 Timothy 1.11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He said it yet again in Titus 1.3. He, at the proper time, manifested in his word through preaching, look, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So clearly... God approved of Paul and God approved of his companions. And because of that, God then entrusted them with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so now he must get that good news out to the lost, first to the lost Jews, and then to the lost Gentiles. Here, Paul clearly sees himself as a steward of God, a steward of the gospel, a steward of the mysteries of God. Look what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. So Paul saw himself as a steward of the mysteries of God. That's, that's the gospel with which he's been entrusted with. And his call was to be found faithful, and he understood that call very clearly. The Greek word for steward literally means house manager. A steward, see, was a worker who supervised his master's property, fields, 
finances, vineyards, foods, and other servants. A steward was given a great amount of responsibility, and he was called to manage well, to take everything into account, and to make sure that the household operated the way that the master wanted the household to be operated. In Genesis 41, Joseph became the steward of Pharaoh. In verse 40, Pharaoh said to Joseph, you shall be over my house. That's what a steward is. And all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. So as a steward, Joseph answered to Pharaoh, yes, but he managed everything else in the household. And so in 1 Corinthians 4, and as we see the same thought in 1 Thessalonians here, Paul understands very clearly that he's a steward of the mysteries of God. He's a steward of the gospel of Christ. This is what God has entrusted him with as a steward. And the question is, will he be a good steward or will he be a bad steward? Will he preach the word in season and out of season even when there's pressure to compromise that word or won't he? Will he preach the word even when people don't like it? Will he preach the word even when it means that people will criticize him? See, God entrusted him with this good news as an apostle. I mean, what a calling. This was his stewardship, and his call is to faithfully preach it, the gospel. The word gospel, what's the gospel? The word gospel means good news, and it speaks of the ultimate good news for our souls that's found in Jesus Christ alone. See, all other news is just news, right? Compared to the true good news of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for all who believe on him. The news then, this, that Jesus, God the Son, left heaven, he came here, he became a man, and he lived a perfect life so he could die on a cross for sinners like us. On the cross, God poured out his divine wrath against the sin of every person who would ever believe onto Jesus so he could then pour out his blessings of forgiveness, grace, mercy, and life, eternal life onto us who believe. See, sin demands death. But the good news is that Jesus died as the believer's substitute for our wretched sin. And because of that, the good news of eternal life and all the eternal blessings that go along with being rescued and with being forgiven, they are ours as believers. See, either you pay the penalty of your sin forever in hell or else Jesus does. And the good news is that for all who believe and surrender to Christ in true, saving, repentant faith, your sin is credited to His account, which He suffered for in your stead on the cross. So His perfect goodness and righteousness that fits you for heaven is then credited to your spiritual account. That's the ultimate trade-off. Jesus came, He lived, He died on a cross, and then He rose up from the dead three days later, conquering sin, hell, and death for all who believe. And there's no better news for us in Christ than that. Anyone? Right? And Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had been approved by God to be entrusted with that. With the gospel. What a privilege. They were faithful stewards of this calling. They were faithful stewards of that privilege. Side note, we're all stewards of God as believers. Yes, we are. We all are. All Christians have the same general calling for our lives to show and share Christ with the many lost souls around us. See, we are salt and we are light in the dark world. And our call is to shine that light brightly. Lord, help us to not see this as a burden, but as a privilege. I get to share 
Christ with the lost around me. I get to be used by God to tell people the good news that can save their soul from eternal wrath. I get to be God's ambassador to the lost. I, I get the honor of giving out the medicine that the sick people around me desperately need. What a privilege. See, it's our privilege. It's our stewardship as Christians. Lord, help us to be faithful like Paul and his friends were. So what then did they do with this high calling? This. They spoke to please God, not men. Look, who, who called them and who entrusted them with the gospel? God did, right? Therefore, speak so as to please God, the one who called you, the one who enlisted you, because the approval of others doesn't really mean anything. Hey, who saved you? Who died on a cross for you? Who forgave you of all your sin? Who rescued you and paid the ransom price for your soul with his own blood? Who? Yeah, the Lord. In light of that, how about living to please him, not sinful men who can't save your soul? Paul understood that not only did Paul, uh, did God save Paul's lost and desperate soul, but God had called him to be an apostle and he entrusted him with the gospel. And in light of that, wonderful privilege he must now speak to please God and not to please men of course what did that mean for Paul well it meant preaching the gospel even though many people around him didn't like it it meant preaching the gospel even when it got him run out of town it meant preaching the gospel even when adding to the gospel and modifying the gospel and twisting the gospel and perverting the gospel to appease people was much more popular. It meant preaching the gospel even when it offended the Jews and made them very angry and even when it meant insulting the Gentiles. What? You, you don't, you don't think I'm good enough on my own to get to heaven? You, you're calling me a sinner who's deserving of eternity in hell? You're saying that my lifestyle, my sinful lifestyle is offensive to God? You're saying I won't go to heaven unless I repent and believe in Christ? Get out of here! I hate you! (laughs) But even so, Paul preached the gospel. And he never said what God didn't call him to say. He never watered down the truth. He never compromised the truth. He always gave people the full truth of God, even when it wasn't popular. And it wasn't popular. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. When? In season... And out of season. That's all the time. So preach it when it's convenient and when it's not. When people approve and when they don't approve. When it's easier and when it's harder. Preach it no matter what. And that's what they did. Look, pleasing men is in these days. Yes, it is. I mean, whole denominations have compromised God's word so they'll be accepted by the culture. Many churches these days look more like a Self-help, raw, raw, make me feel good about my sinful self group than the house of God. Many. Many churches today are man-centered and they're not Christ-centered. They're more focused on pleasing people than they are on pleasing God, so they entertain and they compromise and they fail drastically in their call to be faithful stewards of God. Look, some preachers today, I've told you this before, some preachers today preach about the most recent movie that's come out rather than the Word of God. No, I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Churches today are singing secular songs to entertain people instead of songs that glorify and honor the Lord, which is the purpose of the church, to honor and glorify Him. Sinful lifestyles are accepted and even exalted in the church. People are never called to repent. God's Word is mocked. And man-pleasing is very, very popular in the church. And the question is, Are you a man pleaser? 
I know many Christians who compromise their faith and their convictions so people will like them a little bit more. So what do they do? They remain silent at work so they won't offend anyone. They laugh at the jokes that offend God so they don't offend their friends. They lie a little bit and they cheat a little bit so they fit in more at work. They blend in with society, refusing to be bold, refusing to take a stand, refusing to be a bright light. And they do this because they don't want people to think they're weird or different or unusual. But guess what? You're weird. And so am I. In this culture, if you're a Christian, you're weird. So be it. We need more people like Paul who had a conviction that pleasing God is better, way, way, way better than pleasing men. It's Joshua who was strong and courageous and who chose to serve God regardless of what others chose to do. It's Daniel who prayed to God knowing that it would mean being thrown to the lions. It's Elijah who took on 400 prophets of Baal all alone. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stood up when everyone else was bowing down knowing it meant that they'd be thrown into that fiery furnace. It's hundreds of men and women before us who've lived for Christ at all costs and whether they they lived or whether they died, they put God first above the thoughts and opinions of men. This played out in Paul's life in many different ways, but here it played out in his conviction to speak God's truth, the gospel, in the midst of a world that hated it because, again, pleasing God came first to Paul. Why? Because Paul loved God more than anything else, see? Do you? And if you do, it should show. Note what Paul adds at the end of verse 4. But God who tests our hearts, what does that mean? In context, it tells us that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy's motives were continually scrutinized by the omniscient God. And they lived in light of that scrutiny. It was always before them. Here Paul's saying that God himself is witness to their integrity since he's the only one who can continually examine their inner workings of their hearts, especially their motives. And Paul Paul passionately wants God to be pleased with what he sees. No hypocrisy here. No hidden motives here. No sin that, that, that isn't repented of here. We're fighting sin here. No self-centered ambitions here. No, only the glory of God and the pursuit of the glory of God. And Paul knew that only what God thought mattered. And look, God knows his heart and you can't fool God, see. Hey, God knows. See? God knows. God knows your heart. God knows your inner self, your real person, your thoughts, your feelings, your motives. God knows. You can't fool God. Paul's recognition of that omniscience is what motivated his service. J.C. Ryle says, Forever let us bear in mind that the state of our hearts is the principal thing that demands our attention. And he's right. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks to the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart, Proverbs 21, 2. Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as to this day, 1 Kings eight sixty one. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your heart. How's your heart? People may be impressed by you, but is God impressed? That's the issue. The God who, who knows. 
And first and foremost, God wants our hearts because everything else flows out of that. He wants us to love Him from our hearts. He wants us to be captivated by Him. He wants us to be lost in wonder, love, and praise to Him. He wants us to obey Him from a heart that's intensely in love with Him because He is worthy. So how's your heart? Hey, the Christian mask doesn't fool God at all. Don't even try to put it on. It doesn't fool God. The religious talk doesn't fool God at all. The external duties that are done to impress others don't impress God if your heart isn't right. One said, if the devil ever laughs, it must be at hypocrites. Because they are the greatest dupes that he has. He's right. Because the only one who matters is the Lord. And the Lord, the Lord God Almighty sees things clearly. We all live under the scrutiny of God. And the question is, how are you doing? He tests hearts and he knows the true character, intent, and motives of your heart. It's very sobering. That should be very encouraging to many and it could be a scary thought too. Examine your heart today. Examine your heart. What else did these three men of God do about this high calling for their lives? This. Second, they didn't use flattering words. Verse 5. The word for flattery refers to an attempt to persuade a person by the use of insincere speech or exaggerated praise. The word contains the idea of deception for selfish ends. So it's not just talking about exaggerated speech to make another person feel good, which we shouldn't do. That's, that's not true speech. But even more, it's exaggerated speech for the sake of your own self-interest. Talking about when you say something good to someone as a ploy to win them to yourself for self-interest and or for personal gain, where you set them up for your own deceptive and manipulative purposes. That's sinful. That's untrue. That God doesn't like that, and God's people shouldn't do that. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. See, flattery is a trap. And it's always associated with deception, which certainly isn't of God. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A flattering mouth works ruin. So flattery certainly isn't something that God's people do. So Paul denies that he and his fellow workers had used the, the preaching of the gospel as a means of securing some kind of selfish advantage for them. Yes, flattery was very popular at that time, but um, not for Paul and his friends. No, they simply spoke the truth of God Because God is watching and God knows. And that's a great safeguard against sin. What's our call then? Not to flatter, but to speak the truth, right? Look, people lie, they deceive, and they flatter all the time. The word lying describes an untrue statement, an intentional violation of the truth, something that isn't what it seems to be, or a deception. And it's an epidemic in our society. One study noted that by the age of four, 90% of children have firmly grasped the concept of lying. According to another study, 60% of adults couldn't hold a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. And stats show that 91% of people lie regularly. Lying is ingrained in us. It's rampant in our society. And we in Christ are called to speak the truth in a world full of lies. And that includes not flattering people either. Think about it. It was Satan's lie in the garden that led to the fall And as a ruler of this world for this time, he's built the entire world system on lies. Success is this. Beauty is that. Sin isn't bad. Money will make you happy. This life is all that there is. And so on. It's all a bunch of lies. 
But it worked on Adam and Eve and it continues to work today. And those without Christ follow after His lying ways by being liars like Him. And we in Christ are called to be different. Instead, we speak the truth. That's, that's what we do. We speak the truth. What is truth? God is truth. And because He's the creator of all and because He's the source of all that exists, He alone defines what is true and He alone is the ultimate revealer of all truth. He Himself is truth. Christ the Son is the embodiment of truth and His written word is truth because He cannot lie. So what then is truth? Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. God is the author, source, determiner, governor, arbiter, ultimate standard, and final judge of truth. Jesus, God, the Son, is the truth incarnate, and His Word, the Bible, is truth written down because it came to us from Him. See, ultimate truth is an objective reality. It exists outside of us, and it remains the same regardless of how we feel or of how we perceive it. It's fixed, see, it's constant. So, You have your truth and I have my truth. That is not correct. That is not correct. Because truth isn't up to our own arbitrary and personal interpretation of reality or to our own feelings. No. The truth is fixed. And ignoring the words of Christ won't change that fact. And replacing what God's Word says with what you want it to say won't change that fact either. See, you either follow God's Word, which is truth, or you follow a lie. And lies lead down a dead-end road. Satan is a father of lies. And his goal is to lead us away from the truth because truth is found in God and in the Word of God alone. And look, Christians are those who speak the truth. They don't deceive. They don't mislead. They don't fabricate facts. They don't flatter. No, they speak the truth to each other in love. And so that's always what Paul and his companions did, rightly so. What do people need? Do they need lies that make them feel good or or flattery? or, Or do they need the truth of God? What do they need? They need the truth of God. Paul gave them the truth of God. He didn't flatter. He didn't lie. He didn't deceive. He didn't try to trick people into receiving the gospel by twisting it or by distorting it. No, he gave them the truth of the gospel. We need to do the same. What else did these three men of God do about this high calling for their lives? This, third, they weren't covetous. Verse 5. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor as a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Why say this? Because it's often a problem. (laughs) And Paul needs to make it clear that this isn't an issue for he and his companions in any way. I remember, (laughs) I remember very clearly when I pastored a certain church, when one of the first things that an elder said to me was this. John, you need to figure out a way to get a hundred more people into these doors so we can make budget. Word for word, that's what was said to me by an elder. So people aren't, aren't souls. No, people are dollar signs. And sadly, that's how people are seen by many in the church. What, what sin? Now, covetousness or greed literally means to have more. The word refers to a strong desire to acquire more and more possessions, especially that which is forbidden. By the way, that didn't happen at Faith Community Church. Okay, just want to make sure. 
The word's always used in a bad sense, and it describes an insatiable craving greed that gives rein to the appetites and desires the things um, that are against the laws of God and man. It's more. I, I want more. I need more for myself. More money, more stuff, more of what belongs to, to, to others around me, more. The, I, I need more. What sin? This is self-centered instead of God-centered. This is a root sin that leads to many other kinds of sins, including uncleanness and fornication. And as one said, it is a dreadful scourge, more covetousness. In 2 Kings chapter 5, the prophet Elisha was used by God to heal a man named Naaman, who was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. Naaman was a pretty wealthy and important man. If you remember, in order to be healed, Naaman was supposed to dip seven times in the Jordan River, and after he did that, he would then be healed. At first, in his pride, he didn't do that, but then he finally did it, and guess what? He got healed. Out of his gratitude, Naaman wanted to give Elisha a gift, but Elisha refused, so Naaman departed. But come to find out, Elisha had a servant named Gehazi, who was a very greedy servant. So Gehazi went after Naaman, he lied to Naaman in order to get something more for him from Naaman, and because of his greedy lie, he got about 150 pounds of silver from Naaman, as well as some clothes, and then he stored this newly acquired material goods at his home. He then lied to Elisha the prophet, even though Elisha knew what happened. Don't lie to a prophet of God. And after that, Gehazi came down with leprosy. So, because of a loss for more things for himself, Gehazi lied, he went against the will of the Lord, and he paid a very high price for it. And sadly, there are many Gehazis in our society, many who will lie cheat and steal so that they can get more stuff for themselves. Many coveters. Many. Many who will compromise their very faith for material gain, personal gain, lustful gain, wanting more. Wanting even what doesn't belong to them. Even people in the church and even pastors. Covetousness is a very serious sin. It's listed in the Ten Commandments alongside such sins as idolatry, adultery, and murder. It also angers God. It leads down a road of sinful behavior, and it should have no place in the body of Christ. It should have no place in our lives. It shouldn't even be mentioned, Paul says. The Bible says that an ungodly man is one who thirsts for more things for himself. The Bible says that lusting for more things, whatever those things may be, is something that those who don't know Christ do and focus on. But not Paul and not us. What's the cure? Contentment's the cure. As Hebrews 13.5 says, let your conduct be without covetousness. No, be content with such things as you have. So we're to put off covetousness, Paul says in Ephesians, and we're to put on contentment. What's contentment? Contentment describes a believer who's satisfied with Christ alone and with what Christ has given to him. See, he has Christ indwelling him, and he's satisfied with that, and he's in need of nothing more to complete him. Contentment, see, is a state of mind in which one's desires are confined to his lot, whatever that may be. I trust the Lord. I am satisfied with God's leading in my life, and I will honor Him in the midst of where He has me and with what He's given to me. So, true contentment isn't the result of wealth or things or pleasure or fame. No, no. In fact, all those things often lead to discontentment because when you attain them, you find that you're still not satisfied because, guess what? Only Jesus can truly satisfy. True contentment results from conditions on the inside. 
Adam Clark said, I'm so satisfied with the wise providence and goodness of God that I know whatever he determines is the best. And therefore, I'm perfectly contented that he should govern this world in a way which seems best to his godly wisdom. How true is the proverb, a contented mind is a continual feast. And that's absolutely right. So the call is to trust the Lord and to be content in Him. To seek first His kingdom and then to trust Him with the rest. I know He loves me. He saved my soul from wrath, so I'll trust Him through the good and I will trust Him through the bad and I will be content and satisfied with what He gives to me. And the question is, what about you? Are you content with your spouse? Are you content with your singleness, with your physical condition, with your current situation, with your material goods and so on? Do you trust God with your life or not? Fierce passions discompose the mind as tempests vex the sea. But calm, content, and peace we find when, Lord, we turn to Thee. And here Paul makes it clear that he was contented in God. And he wasn't covetousness. He wasn't driven to get more for himself, money, fame, or anything else. No, he trusted God with that. And he focused on what God called him to do. That's it. He wants God's approval. That's it. He wants to pass all the tests that come his way and still be glorifying God. Because glorifying God is all that truly matters. So, that's what he did, right? That was his aim. That was his focus. Even though it brought him many troubles along the way. God was worth it all. And life is hard, but I'm content because I have God. See, I saw a video clip the other day. You know this isn't going to go well, right? About the health wealth preacher, Jesse Duplantis. You ever heard of Jesse Duplantis, anybody? Yeah, don't, don't look him up. The guy's terrible. He preaches another gospel. He's a heretic and a liar, and people love him. They love him. He's also very rich because of all the lies that he preaches. In the video clip, he's bragging about all the money that he has. Here's what he says, word for word. I have the biggest house in the state of Louisiana. I have the biggest house of any preacher in America. I paid cash for my home, and people begin to cheer. I have a name for my home, La Raison de, I don't, whatever. He named his home. He says, you want to know how big my home is? It's 40,000 square feet. He also brags about his jet. Jets. And he brags about his jewelry. He says, I have jewelry that costs more than your house. And it's true. And he's proud of it. He told his congregation that Jesus hasn't returned because they haven't given enough money to his ministry. Guess what? Paul's the opposite of Jesse Duplantis. He's the opposite. Paul wasn't doing what he did for money or fame or recognition or applause or the love of people or any other reason except to glorify the God whom he loved and to be faithful to the calling that God had given to him. That's it. He was poor. He was hated. He suffered greatly. He had very little earthly possessions because of his faith and because of his calling. But God was glorified and that was enough. And it should be enough for every preacher and it should be enough for every Christian. 
Whose approval do you want? Will money or things or other people save your soul? What really matters? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be more like Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Where we're not about the fading things of this life that burn and rot, but that we're about the things that have eternal value, about pleasing You, glorifying You, doing what You call us to do, because we love You. Help that to be what compels us. And help us, Lord, more and more, as we know that You are watching and know our hearts and our thoughts, Help us to be approved. May we be battling sin and pursuing You. Fighting it. Seeking Your glory. Sharing Your truth. Help us to be faithful. May we encourage one another in these eternal things. Realizing that we get the pleasure of glorifying You with our fading lives. Help us to do it well. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.